So I want to minister for a little while this morning through a message I'm calling Perfect and Fully Assured. That dovetails into last week's message. I want to begin by asking you a question. Have you ever watched someone give up on something before they even started? <laughs> sure you have. You've done it and I've done it. Let's be honest, we've all done it. I'm talking about times when we've faced Goliaths that were so big, too scary. Times when we felt like that is out of my comfort zone. So we kindly just said, no, thank you. Well, the expression perfect and fully assured kind of fit into that category. It's big. It can be scary to people. And the truth be told, it is hard. It is difficult for a man, including people within the body of Christ, to say the words, I am perfect in Christ. You say, how do you know that, Mark? I didn't just get saved yesterday. I've been saved a long time. I was talking to one of my brothers the other day, and, well, he's been my brother for almost 60 years. And he said to me, brother, he said, you are the only person I've ever heard call him daddy. Of course, he's not church, so I understand why he hasn't heard this. But a lot of the body of Christ won't call him daddy, won't call him papa. And he is God. He is Father. And as I told my brother, I said, even my own children, when they call me Daddy, you have got my attention. You have brought yourself up very close and personal to me when you've referred to me like that. You're essentially saying, I trust you. I connect with you. I want to be close to you. He's my Daddy. He's Papa. And I said to him, the word calls him Abba, Father. And Abba is a term of endearment that means Papa. Abba, Father. He's up close. He's personal. As Valerie said, he's not just in heaven. He brought heaven down. He brought heaven to us. We live in this heaven right now. The Bible says we're seated with Christ in heavenly places. So we are already there too. He's here, we're there. The words perfect and fully assured sets the standard so high that believers are quick to excuse themselves from ever being able to acknowledge such a state of being. It's blasphemous to some to say, I'm perfect to hear those words. I've got good news for you, friends. You and I are on a journey of grace that will ultimately lead you under the banner of perfect and fully assured. You see, in our spirits, we are completely perfect. There is no argument. We are completely perfect. How can I say that? Because Jesus lives there. Jesus lives in our spirit, and the word tells us that we are sealed by the spirit until the day of redemption. We are perfect. He does not cohabitate with the enemy. He lives there by himself. He lives in our spirit. We are perfect in our spirit. Condemnation is not allowed. I don't care if it walks in with a mask. It is not 
allowed in our spirit. Jesus does not allow condemnation in our spirit. Friends, let me say something to you. There is nothing that you can do, that I can do, that can make us more perfect or less perfect. You are as perfect as you will ever be. Now, let me say this. Let's talk about another realm that we live in too, our soulish realm, our souls, which are comprised of our mind, our will, our emotions. That's what makes up our souls. They are less than perfect at times, but they just simply need to come into alignment with the voice of the inner man and listen to what the inner man is saying and then say what the inner man is saying. I'm talking about our spirit. What are the benefits? The spirit is always right. He doesn't speak things that are incorrect. He is always speaking truth. He is grace and truth. The benefit of listening to the inner man is because we get our identity from our inner man. This is where our identity is supposed to come from. It's not supposed to come from a label that the world will pin on you. Our identity comes from him. And what is he saying to us? He's always saying things like, your daddy's son, your daddy's daughter, you are the righteousness of God in me. You're the righteousness of God in Christ. Friends, in this realm that we live in, in this soulish realm, he leads us into green pastures. He leads us beside still waters. In our own strength, in our own intellect, I will agree with you, yes, we fall short. That is in our own soulish realm. Yes, that's the area we fall short in. We say things we shouldn't have said. We go places we shouldn't have gone at times. We do things we shouldn't have done. We think things we shouldn't have thought. But listen to me carefully. None of those bloopers, you call them what you want, none of those bloopers characterize who we really are in Christ. We are the righteousness of God in Christ. Apart from Jesus, we are as helpless as a bird without wings and a turtle without a shell. But in Christ, we can do all things. In Christ, we have all things. In Christ, we become all things. In Christ, friends, in Christ is where we discover our perfection and our full assurance. We see that as we look into the mirror of Christ that we are as perfect as he is. We can be fully assured that we are perfect as our Christ is. The book of Hebrews delivers a death blow to our religious minds as it takes a scalpel and it cuts away the flesh head thinking. The book of Hebrews unveils our identity. It unveils our inheritance and it unveils the new covenant almost like no other book of the Bible. I would encourage you to spend some time there. If you want to see who you are in Christ, your identity is defined there. Your inheritance is unleashed there. And friends, the new covenant is all over the book of Hebrews. In Hebrews chapter 10, verses 1 through 4, we find these words. Look at these words. The law gave us only an unclear picture of the good things coming in the future. What do you mean an unclear picture? Well, the law couldn't show you Christ that was coming in the future. The law didn't show you grace 
That was still coming in the future. The law couldn't show you how perfect you are because it was always condemning you. The law couldn't give you full assurance because everybody kept falling short. So it says the law gave us only an unclear picture of the good things coming in the future. Do you see that? Christ is coming in the future. Couldn't see that under the law. Grace was coming in the future. Couldn't appreciate that under the law. And that new covenant coming in the future. Couldn't see that under the law. They just thought this is the way it's always going to be. Now look at these next words. It says the law is not a perfect picture of the real things. I don't know about you, but I like looking at good pictures, perfect pictures. I don't like pictures that mess with my mind. It says, but the law is not a perfect picture of the real things. Now look what it says. It says, the law tells people to offer the same sacrifices every year. Well, that's how it worked under the law. Every year, you had to grab a sheep. You had to grab a bullock. Depends on what you could afford, a turtle dove, a pigeon. And you would bring it into the temple, confess your sins unto that animal, and that animal's life would be sacrificed. Your sins would, in essence, be transferred into that animal. It was just a type and shadow. It was just a foretelling of what was going to happen. Remember, the law couldn't tell us about all the good things that were coming. And so as they would walk into the marketplace, they would hear the bleeding of lambs. They would hear the lowing of cattle. They would hear the cooing of the turtle dove. And they would hear the bells ringing on the high priest's robe. They would smell blood in the marketplace. And you know what it was? It was a constant reminder of failure. It was a constant reminder of your sin. Your sin did all of this. It says, those who come to worship God continue to offer those sacrifices. That's how it was. But the law can never make them perfect. Please underscore these words in your heart this morning because believers today are still fighting with this. They believe that their performance, they believe that their law, they believe that their following of commandments still make them perfect. What do those words say? But the law can never make them perfect. I'm not saying we go out and disregard the laws of the Bible. I'm not saying that. But those laws cannot make you perfect. All those laws were there was to point to your failure and your need to go to God, your need to bring an animal for a sacrifice. Those laws were a constant reminder of sin. Those sacrifices were. Now look at the next scriptures. It says, if the law could make people perfect, it just says, let's just uh, suppose for a moment. If the law could make people perfect, those sacrifices would have already stopped. Why would they have stopped? Because they made you perfect. That means you can't sin anymore. That means you can't make mistakes anymore. So the law, if it could have made anybody perfect, would have had to have stopped. It would have had to have ceased. If the law could make people perfect, those sacrifices would have already stopped. They would already be clean from their sins and they would not feel guilty. How many of you have ever felt guilty in life? Come on. We have all felt guilty. We've all felt ashamed. We've all felt fear. We've all felt condemnation. And you know what? The law would be of absolutely no help to you in terms of taking away guilt, taking away shame. No, it cannot remove it. It says they would already be clean from their sins and they would not still feel guilty. But look at those words. But that's not what happened. Their sacrifices make them remember their sins every year. 
because it is not possible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. These sacrifices could never take them away. They could cover sins under the Old Testament. But John the Baptist would stand in the muddy Jordan River and he would see his cousin Jesus coming and he would say, behold, the Lamb of God, what did he say? Who takes away the sin of the world. He didn't say who covers the sin of the world. He didn't say, you're going to need to go see my cousin once a year. He said, I want you to look at a man that you have never seen before in your lifetime. He's Jesus and he takes away the sin of the world. That is good news. So under those first four scriptures, what we see is we see the sacrifice system that the father had set up in, under the old covenant. You sinned once a year, you bring your lamb, you bring your bullock, you bring your turtle dove, you bring your pigeon, whatever you could afford, you bring your goat, whatever. You bring it to the high priest, transfer your sins, your sins were covered for that year, but guess what? You had to come back again the next year, you had to bring another lamb, it was just a constant reminder that I am an absolute abject failure. How would you like to live like that all the time? Friends, there are people that still live this way. They feel like a failure. They don't know how to get rid of failure. It's not like you can put it in your pocket and slit the pocket and hope it falls out in your daily walk. No, failure doesn't leave that way. It goes in Christ. It goes when you come into this realization that you are perfect and fully assured. Now, I want to stay in context here. We are in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 1 through 4 right now. Did you see? It was the law and it could never take away sins. Now, Let's skip up to verses 12 and verse 14 and take a look at this. I love this. But Christ. Do you love that word, that conjunction, but? Remember, I've said before, but is an eraser. You see, I love you, but. Well, you just erased I loved you. See, but is a conjunction, but it is an eraser. And it starts off having worked all the way up to verse 12, telling you about how it always used to look. And it said, but Christ. What did he do? He came to erase our sins. He came to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. It says, but Christ, what did he do? Offered up only one sacrifice, not one per person. Bring me, let's just say there were 10 million people living at the time. Bring me 10 million lambs. Bring me 10 million turtle doves, whatever it may be. No, he offered up one sacrifice. One lamb. He is that lamb. But Christ offered up only one sacrifice for sins. Friends, if there is a scripture to memorize from the Bible, it is this one. When you think in terms of this new covenant and someone is trying to say, no, I believe you can lose your salvation. Friends, as I've said, I don't go around saying once saved, always saved, but I do go around saying once his, always his. Now you translate it however you want to, but that is a fact. Once his, always his. But Christ offered only one sacrifice for sins, and that sacrifice is good for all time. <laughs> you love that? It's good for all time. No matter what situation you find yourself into, it is the key that unlocks that situation. Friends, I've got keys on my key ring that I don't even know what they belong to anymore. I've 
probably not the only one. One of these days when I've got absolutely nothing better to do, I think I'll try it out and see where they go and just toss the ones that don't belong and then find out a year later, oh yeah, I needed that key. That goes to a shed I had somewhere. I don't know, but guess what? Christ once for all sacrifice. Jesus said, I am the door, not just one of many doors. I am the door. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. And then he said, I am the door. Amen. But Christ offered only one sacrifice for sins, and that sacrifice is good for all time. Then he sat down at the right hand of God. What does that signify? A man that sits down is saying, I finished the work. It's a finished work. Daddy, I'm going to sit down signifying I don't have to get back up and go do that again. And guess what, Papa? I'm going to seat everybody that comes to me in heavenly places right inside of me. We are seated with Christ in heavenly places. Then he sat down at the right hand of God and with one sacrifice, Christ made his people perfect forever Man, I tell you what, if there were two words to grab a hold of, friends, and take home with you today, it'd be those words right there. He made his people perfect forever. I'm not making this up. This is in the Bible. I don't care what Bible, what version you've got. I guarantee you'll find those words in there. He made us perfect forever by one sacrifice. They are the ones who are being made holy. Now, let's juxtapose for a second. We've seen what happens in verses 1 through 4. It's all about the law, repeated annual sacrifices, which can never take away sins. We see all that going on. But then Christ comes, and by one sacrifice, he has made people perfect forever. Everybody that would come to him, he has made us perfect forever by that one sacrifice. Now, let's skip up to verse 22. Stay in context here. Look what it says. Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Did you see in verses 12 and 14, he talked about us being made perfect forever in Christ. We are perfect in Christ. And he said, because of that revelation, when you get that revelation that you have been made perfect in me, when you understand that deep from your spirit, deep in your soul, he said, you know what you're going to do? You're going to walk away with a full assurance. I'm fully assured. So again, we're summarizing these verses all from Hebrews chapter 10. Through Jesus's once for all sacrifice, we have been made perfect forever and with that truth comes full assurance. The attributes of perfection and full assurance cannot be found. They cannot be ascertained apart from Jesus Christ and his once for all sacrifice for sin. In other words, you will never see yourself as perfect or walk in full assurance without the revelation of grace. Because you will keep thinking you've got to contribute. And it's not that way in God. It's not that way in Christ. It's by his sacrifice that we were made perfect. So you'll never see yourself perfect without that revelation of grace. Nothing that man has made was ever perfect. Everything that is man-made, whether it be a substance or an ideology and religion or whatever it may be, will eventually crumble. It is through Christ Jesus and his finished work on the cross that we discover a perfect gospel a perfect 
redemption, a perfect salvation, a perfect love, a perfect hope, a perfect faith, a perfect grace, a perfect rest, and that all comes because we have a perfect Savior, friends. It is through the revelation of the Father's loving kindness and through a more robust, maybe a fuller understanding of the new covenant of grace that we begin to realize, we begin to see the picture of just how perfect we really are. And friends, it is through a deeper, more meaningful revelation of the gospel of grace and the gospel of peace that our hearts become fully assured. I want you to pause and think about that in your mind for a moment. It's through that revelation of his grace. It's through that revelation of this unconditional agape love. It's through this revelation of perfect peace that we become fully assured. I think it would be unusual, very unusual, wildly unreal, extremely atypical, and hard to find a person that didn't desire a perfect life. Come on. I want you to work with me on this for a second. Imagine with me for a moment what it would be like to have perfect weather. You, Whatever temperature you like it at, that's the way it will stay forever. It doesn't rain when you take picnics and go on picnics. It's perfect weather. Imagine what life would be like with a perfect family. Everybody gets along. There's no divorce. There's only love. Everybody visits one another. A perfect family. Imagine what life would be like with perfect health. No medications. No mutilations. No sickness. No disease. No hospital stays. No more death. Imagine what life would be like with perfect health. Imagine what life would be like with perfect finances. I'm talking about when you can wake up in the morning, go anywhere you want to go and stay as long as you want to stay. Spend whatever you want to spend. Wouldn't that be a great time? Perfect finances. But then I want you to remember what life would be like with perfect peace. That you're never disturbed. That your cage is never rattled. That you're never upset. That you live in a state of perfect peace. That's the kind of perfection that I'm telling you that lives inside of our spirit. And his name is Jesus Christ. That kind of perfection lives on the inside of us. And as sons of God, I want you to know something this morning. You are perfectly cleansed. You are perfectly whole. And you are perfectly his. Assurance, on the other hand, deals more with our soul. The soul of man. The realm where we always need convincing. You want to know why? I'll tell you why. Because our words and our actions and our thoughts are seldomly perfect. Would you agree with that? <laughs> Come on. You might be thinking good things, but they might not be perfect things. And so there's this tug of war, it seems, that we have this battle that goes on between flesh head, as Valerie was talking about, in our soulish realm, in our spirit realm, where we are absolutely perfect and we are less than perfect here, but we just need to communicate more with the spirit man and let him ooze out and seep out into our mind and our will and our emotions and be transformed by the renewing of your mind, as the scriptures say. See, we say things we shouldn't say, like I said, and do things we shouldn't do. 
And that can be a problem for us at times because we begin to buy into the serpent's lies that we are the sum total of our performance. That is simply not true. You are not the sum total of your performance. You are the righteousness of God in Christ. Believe that. We are perfect in our spirits, yet our minds need renewing. Not only renewing, our minds need mending. They need to be mended. We're kind of like a fishing net in a way. And I think that's a good word picture of spirit and soul. With a fishing net that may be 12, 14, 16, 20 feet long, on one end of that net, it can be in perfect shape and it catches all kinds of fish. But on this end over here, maybe the soulish realm, it's got holes everywhere and all the fish seem to slip through. That is the picture of one part working so well, but yet the same man or the same net working so poorly in another area. Do you see that? Yes. You see, I can be paddling in an ocean and I can be on top of a perfectly good surfboard, which I've never done. <laughs> perfectly good surfboard and I can be having the time of my life. But then in a moment, lose my assurance when the fin of a great white shark penetrates the surface of the water within reach of me. I have lost my assurance. The presence of the shark has not altered the way my surfboard feels or the way my surfboard looks. But the presence of that shark, the presence of Jaws, has certainly altered the look on my face. And it has certainly altered my emotions and my feelings. For that brief moment, I have lost my confidence. I have lost my assurance. What I want you to see through the message today is this. We are not promised a life that is void of shark fins and frightening moments. Our souls have to wrestle with things like corruption and disappointments and heartache. But in spite of our circumstances, we have the Father's word that we are perfect in our spirit. I'm talking about the place where grace and rest find their home in the ark. That ark is Christ. In our spirits, we cannot be contaminated or disenfranchised. It is from this place, it's called an inner sanctuary, if you will, that we work out a perfect salvation from our spirit into our soul. Amen? Friends, I'm not saying that we will never experience fear or that natural fear is wrong. The dorsal fin of a great white shark surfacing right next to me is great cause for anxiety. I believe me, it, it would be. So I'm just telling you, there are things in life, natural fears that we would get afraid of. That makes sense. Only the pulse of a blind man would be unmoved in a situation like that. But what I am saying is this, this is what I want you to take away from this, is that the vital signs of many believers are constantly tossed to and fro because they have not been taught that they are a perfect man unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. They have not matured in the unity of the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God's once for all sacrifice for sin. In Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 through 15, we find these words. It says, And he gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers 
Look at what he says, for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come in the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man, unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Let me talk about this for a second. When I look at those scriptures, I can see right out of the gate that our Father has provided us with tremendous resources. How do they show up? They show up in the form of apostle, prophet, evangelist, pastor, and teacher. And friends, we cannot overlook the greatest teacher of all, and that is the sweet Holy Spirit. And the Father has given this to the body of Christ. So let me ask the question, what are their collective roles? What are the roles of apostles and prophets and evangelists and pastors and teachers and the Holy Spirit? Well, it tells you in those scriptures, it says the perfecting of the saints, first of all. It says for the work of the ministry, and I love how it leaves the last one, it says, especially for the edifying of the body of Christ. So let's ask a question. How is this perfecting and full assurance released? I'll tell you how it's done. By drawing men's hearts back to Jesus' once-for-all sacrifice on the cross. Friends, knowing this truth alone, you know what it does? It puts wings back on your side. It puts a shell back on your back. It plunges the frightening dorsal fin of sin below the surface, and it plants our feet squarely under the banner of perfect and fully assured. In that scripture, it says, and he gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers. And then it says, for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. I want you to take a look at this word, perfecting. It comes from the Greek word, katartismos. It means complete furnishing. Okay. That's still a little ambiguous. I mean, if I rent an apartment that's completely furnished, I really still don't know what it's going to be like till I get there and what condition it's going to be in. But the definition in the Greek for katartismos means complete furnishing. So let's look at this word and make it maybe a little more clear. The root word for katartismos is very similar. It's katartizo. It says to complete thoroughly, it says prepare, repair, restore, adjust, join together, frame, and mend. That is what perfecting means. So when he's given people to us, pastors, teachers, evangelists, prophets, apostles, he's given them to us for these reasons, to completely prepare, but not only prepare, but repair, restore, adjust, join together, frame, and mend. By this definition, you can see that the apostle and the prophet, the evangelist, the pastor, and the teacher have deeper assignments and responsibilities than just tickling our ears through 15-minute messages on good advice. We are called, number one, to prepare, but number two, to repair. What's the difference? Well, there's a big difference. You see, I can prepare my suitcase. That means I'm putting clothes in. But if I'm repairing my suitcase, I'm fixing my suitcase. Do you see the difference? And so the church is filled with people that have been down roads in life that they're not ready to just be prepared to go out and do ministry. 
they're still in that stage where they need repairing. They need to be restored. They need to see Christ reframed in their hearts. And they need to be mended. And it takes time. I've always said, grace is a slow drip. It takes time to mend. It takes time to heal. We are called to prepare and repair. And that same Greek word for mend there is actually the same word that Matthew used in his gospel a couple times when he talked about mending nets, when he talked about repairing nets, when he talked about mending nets. It's the same word, katartis zo. Same exact word is given to the prophet, the pastor, the teacher to mend our hearts, to perfect our hearts. If for the perfecting of the saints, it is the exact same word. And as a pastor and teacher and a minister of the gospel, my deepest delight, my greatest joy, my deepest gratification, listen to me carefully, is not just to get up on Sunday mornings and preach. My deepest joy is to mend broken hearts, restore minds, adjust doctrine, and reframe the way a torn and broken man understands and embraces the gift of righteousness and the gift of grace. I'm talking about a man that keeps bringing sacrifices for sin when Jesus' once-for-all sacrifice was sufficient. That tells you in his heart of hearts, in his soul, in his mind, his will and his emotion, he's broken. He needs to be restored. He needs to be reframed in the way he sees his relationship with God and what God has done for us at the cross. I'm talking about a man who thinks that God's standard perfection was set so high that it makes it impossible to call himself perfect in Christ. I'm talking about an indoctrinated believer, someone that's been in the church for a long time, but they've gotten so used to living without wings and a shell. And as a result, they live far below the threshold of where grace has called them to and where grace would love to reach down and grab their hand and bring them up to. And as vulnerable as they are without wings and without a shell, they still cannot see their need to mend their broken ways of thinking. I'm talking about a man that looks into the kitchen sink and yells, Shark! What? It's not rational. He's a torn soul. Now you say, Mark, that sounds kind of silly. Nobody would do that. Well, maybe they wouldn't. But if you'll just listen to the words coming out of people, friends, you'll see they're a broken soul. There's nothing wrong with their spirit. Remember, he is perfect in his spirit. It's in this mind, it's in this will, it's in this emotions, the way he's been framed in life. That's the problem. So let's ask the question, what created the tear in the net of this man's soul, this woman's soul? Could it be something as simple as mental illness? Yes, it could be. But friends, listen to me carefully. There are very few people, very small amount of people that would be suffering because of mental illness. The main culprit that tears souls apart, listen to me carefully because I almost cringe to say this, but if you know my heart for people and you know how much I love people and care about people, 
You'll know my motivation is right here. The main culprit that tears holes in people's hearts and people's souls, whether man, woman, boy, or girls, listen to me carefully, is wrong teaching. Wrong teaching. And I'm not trying to throw anybody under the bus. That's not what this message is about. But it's wrong teaching. You see, when a person hears a biblical teaching, a teaching that is widely held, frequently repeated, and routinely recalled, it becomes their truth regardless if it's true or not. When you hear something over and over, you will eventually begin to repeat it. You will begin to see that as truth regardless if it's true or not. And I have used this example before. It's like the ministers who will preach the message that when the one sheep leaves the 99 and he goes and finds that sheep, that he will break that sheep's legs and put that little lamb around his neck and then teach it never to walk away from him ever again because he could get eaten by a, a wolf or something. Friends, that is not in the Bible. That came from a sermon in the late 1950s and people picked it up and began to use it because it sounded good. We got to find a way to make sure our sheep don't walk away from the church. We got to let them know that maybe the pastor is going to come looking for you and have to break your legs or whatever it may be. That is a doctrine that is absolutely not true yet still preached to this day. You see, thanks to a mental shortcut our brains take without us even realizing it, much of what people believe is actually not even true. Cognitive scientists refer to this mental shortcut our brains take as, listen to these words right here, processing fluency. If I would have showed you those words before I got into this, you would probably had no idea what those two words mean. This is what the scientists, cognitive scientists, refer to this as, this is why our knowledge base is filled with more flawed ideas than we'd like to believe. But look at what processing fluency is. Listen to me carefully. It's a cognitive bias in which our opinion of something is influenced by how easily our brain processes it and understands it. So that is the filter that comes through. Does it come through and is it processed easily? Yes, okay. We tend to prefer things that are simple to understand and use and will even find simple information more believable. Let me summarize what I just said. In other words, our brains prefer to believe simple lies over complex truths because they are easier to understand sometimes. Do you see where I'm going with this thing? Our brains take shortcuts. They will automatically assume it knows where it's going. And when it's faced with information, if it's easy to swallow, it would prefer that than something that goes down rough, like castor oil, okay? It goes down rough, but it does the body goods, as we say. Valerie will occasionally get a haircut. She has been cutting hair for 40 years. She held a license for at least 25 years of those 40 years. And every time she goes and gets a haircut, she comes home disappointed. I don't know if there's been one time she came home and said, I, I really like my haircut today. She's always disappointed. 
And I think, why? How can that be, honey? And I'll see her at the vanity and she'll have her own scissors clipping the places where they didn't do it. Now, Valerie knows something about hair. She knows stuff about coloring hair. She knows how to cut it. She knows how to layer it. She knows how to do all these things to hair. And when she translates it to the hairstylist, it's not that Valerie is communicating poorly. Remember, she knows about haircuts. She knows about hairs. How could she end up with a bad haircut? Because of processing fluency. You see, the woman is there to make money. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, I think I know what you want. Her brain has already ran ahead and says, I know exactly what you want, but it is almost never the way she wanted it to be. And I think there's other people in here that can identify with what I'm talking about. That's why I don't go get a haircut from anybody but Valerie. Because I've told him before, I want to cut like this. Don't take too much off here. Don't leave any blah, blah, blah. And end up with, man, an alfalfa haircut. Do you see how this works? Did you know that until the day my daddy died, he swore that the earth was flat? And I would tell him even from a kid, Daddy, it ain't flat. He said, yo, son, it's flat. You think the fact that he was born in 1922 and had a second grade education that had anything to do with it? I think it probably did. I think that had part of it to do with it. But it's what he believed early in life. And because he never explored truth, his brain just kept taking the shortcut. The earth is flat. And I would say, Daddy, well, how come nobody has ever gotten to the edge of the earth to prove that? And he would say, Son, they just haven't walked far enough. I would say, Daddy, no, it's round, Daddy. But you couldn't convince him of this. He believed that no man had ever walked on the moon. Why? Because the standard was so high. He's born in 1922. They barely had vehicles running around. How can a man go to the moon? The standard was set so high that his brain did process influencing. It said, no, that can't be. I think I know what you're trying to say. In the same way, friends, so many believers cannot see themselves perfect in Christ because of teachings that have been widely held frequently repeated and routinely recalled. As a result, they don't lose their perfection. Remember, it's a finished work. You are perfect in your spirit. It is a finished work. But what they do lose, they lose their full assurance. For that moment, they cannot believe. I don't care until you talk to your blue in the face. Friends, it takes a revelation of the Father's unconditional love. It takes a revelation of His amazing grace. It takes a, a revelation of His matchless mercy. And as all those begin to meld together in your heart, you begin to see Him for the God that He is, for the Father that He is, then everything is believable. Nothing that's off limits. So, when ministers take precious new creations in Christ and they put them under the old covenant law, you know the law I'm talking about, do good, get good, do bad, get bad, perform to please God and don't sin too much or you'll lose your salvation. That kind of teaching will tear a hole in their heart and then it will build spiritual scar tissue around that wound. It'll build spiritual scar tissue around what they believe and just set up a massive stronghold that's so hard to penetrate. Friends, you and I will never see ourselves as perfect apart from grace. You will never experience full assurance apart from the constant drip of this gospel of the finished work 
of grace. It is the antidote for erroneous doctrine that is widely held, frequently repeated, and routinely recalled. So again, as you're looking at Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 through 15, and he gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry. Then he says, for edifying. I like that word because edifying means to build up. He gave you these people to build you up. And so you would think that that's the definition you would find uh, behind this word edifying. But when I looked it up yesterday in the concordance, you know what the word is? Architecture. Edifying says architecture. You see, too often we think of edifying as just some warm and fuzzy feeling. No, it's architecture. You know what architecture is? It's the art or practice of designing and constructing a building. That's what architecture is. And you are God's handiwork. You are God's building. And God has given us the Holy Spirit. And he's given us this gospel of grace to build this building. Friends, look, our ministry is not to build a physical building. Our ministry is to edify people. It's to build up people, whether here or there. It is to build up people. And you do this by impregnating their soul with something that's so virtuous, this love of God, this grace of God, this unconditional power of God. Till we all come in the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Next scriptures. That we henceforth be no more children. Now look what he says, toss to and fro. Do you ever feel like that's you? You're in the spin cycle of a dryer or a wash machine. You're just spinning all the time. You're tossed to and fro. You're sick and you're dizzy. You don't know if you're going to stand or you're going to fall. That's how it is when we toggle from one belief system to another. This is why it's so important to be established in grace, established in the love of God. We're not tossed to and fro. That we henceforth be no more children tossed to and fro and carried about with what? Look what he says, you're going to get carried, not by a tornado, not by a hurricane, but by every wind of doctrine, by the slight, like the shell game, by the slight of men and cunning craftiness, whereby they lie in wait to deceive. Don't be fooled by this processing influence and allow it to default your brain to something that's just easy to believe, friends. I want you to take a stand for truth. In fact, it says that next, it says, but speaking the truth in love, may grow up into him in all things, which is the head, even Christ. The first time the word perfect surfaces in the Bible is in the book of Genesis. We don't get very far and we'll run into that word perfect. And the man that wears that honor is none other than Noah. It's important to know, friends, that Noah lived prior to the Mosaic law. Now, why is that important? Because Noah is not under that old covenant where you have to bring a lamb. You have to bring a sheep. Oh, he's going to bring them, but he's going to put them in the ark, friends. He's not bringing them to slaughter. He lived prior to the Mosaic covenant. That means he lived prior to Moses. And that means he's under a covenant a lot like ours. Very much like ours. It's a covenant of faith. It's a covenant of trusting in God. Very similar to ours. Genesis chapter 6, verse 9. Look at that. 
These are the generations of Noah. It says Noah was a just man. That means Noah was a righteous man. He was a righteous man. Noah was a just man. Look at those words. And perfect in his generations. And Noah walked with God. So let's ask the obvious question, okay? Let's get it out of the way. How did Noah become perfect? That's a good question, isn't it? Well, through the righteousness of God that God had credited to his account, that made him a perfect man. So how did Noah become righteous? Because, see, we always want to keep peeling onions back to their origin. Okay, if righteousness made him perfect, well, then where did he get the righteousness from? How did Noah become righteous? In the same manner that you and I become righteous and perfect, Noah believed God. Noah trusted God. His boat building skills earned him zero Coles cash, friends. His, his ability to lead the animals on the ark, that's a math problem, friend. To know where to put them all and make sure that you didn't overlook anything. That is a list that you're checking once and twice, right? but he earned zero brownie points for that. That is not what made him righteous. That is not what made him perfect. All of that made him respond to God when he said, I want you to build a boat. I want you to build an ark. But friends, you see this? If you back up just one verse and you add verse eight to verse nine, the mystery is revealed. Now let's look at Genesis chapter six, verses eight and nine. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a just man and perfect in his generations. And Noah walked with God. I find it very interesting that the first time grace comes up, he's talking about Noah. The first time perfect comes up, he's talking about Noah. The first time he's talking about a just man, Noah. It's God's grace, friends that was on Noah's life because he would hear the word of God however it was communicated and he believed that voice. He believed the God that he was hearing from without even knowing who this God could be maybe. It was Noah's faith. And I love this because when we think about the relationship between grace and righteousness and being perfect, when we think about that, and it's all tied to this man, Noah. His name in Hebrew means rest. And ultimately, God was saying, I want my people to rest. I want my people to be in perfect peace. And as this revelation that you're under my grace, I've given you righteousness. You are perfect in your spirit. When all of those wonderful truths become your reality. You know what it does? You fall into perfect rest. Noah's name is made with two letters. His name means rest. But when you flip those two Hebrew letters around, now it reads grace in those same two letters. You don't think the father didn't do that intentionally? I know he did. I know he did. Do you see the relationship? This is the heart. This is the essence of the new covenant that we would be people of rest. The Father wants us to rest. You can get more done resting. More comes to you while you're at rest 
than while you're trying to work it out. I can tell you that because when I write sermons, I get stuck sometimes and I have to walk away and go do dishes. And while I'm standing there doing dishes, thinking nothing about but the dishes, he begins to communicate. Or step in the shower and he begins to communicate. When you're just resting, you're not trying to work so hard to work things out. And that is a lesson for us, that we wouldn't labor over stuff so long. The word perfect in Hebrew is tamim. And look what it means. Entire, integrity, truth, without blemish, complete, full, perfect, without spot, undefiled, upright, whole. Friends, if time permitted me, I could take us into the new covenant and I could show you that every one of those Hebrew adjectives is exactly who we are in Christ. There are scriptures for every one of those definitions. And friends, this is how the Father saw Noah and this is how the Father sees us. Amen? Final scriptures. Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 through 30 in the King James Bible, it says this. Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and ye shall find rest unto your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. What is Jesus saying? He is saying, look, come to me for rest. You're tired. You're being religious. Come to me. Get in the habit of coming to me. As Valerie said earlier, he's the one who satisfies. Why? Because he's the bread of life. He's the living water. Only Christ can satisfy us. And then look at it one last time. I love it this way. Eugene Peterson wrote it this way in the Message Bible. He said, are you tired? Worn out? Burned out on religion? He said the same thing. Come to me. Get away with me and you'll recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest. Walk with me and work with me. Watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. Learn by what? Watching me. Learn how by walking with me. Learn how by watching how I do it. I'm at rest. Why? Because I finished the work. I am perfect. You are inside of me. You are perfect. He said, otherwise you'll stay tired. You'll stay worn out. You'll stay burned out on religion. But he said, get away with me and take a real rest. I'm going to show you how to do this. And he said, I love that. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. He says, I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me and you'll learn to live freely and lightly. In other words, you will live fully assured in knowing that his once for all sacrifice on the cross has made you perfect. Friends, the wonderful truths that reach out to us from this message today are these. The standard for perfection and full assurance was set very high. And it was set high for a very good reason. And that is so the works of the flesh and the law itself could not take you there. You must be invited by the spirit of grace. In our spirits, 
We are completely perfect. We can never be contaminated again. We do not lose our wings or our protective shell through flesh head bloopers, though there be many. We get our identity from Christ. We get our righteousness from Christ. We get our protection from Christ. We get our wings from Christ. We get our perfection from Christ. We get our full assurance from Christ. And we receive all the benefits of the new covenant by and through Christ. Under the old covenant law, annual sacrifices were a constant reminder of what? Sin and failure. Under the new covenant of grace, Jesus' once-for-all sacrifice is a constant reminder that he was victorious and that he has made his people perfect forever. Friends, listen, enjoy the journey. The dorsal fin of sin is no longer frightening. It has been cast into the sea of forgetfulness. It has sunk below the surface and it is remembered no more. It is through Christ Jesus and his finished work on the cross that we discover a perfect gospel, a gospel that is without blemish, a gospel that is complete, a gospel that is full, perfect, without spot, undefiled, upright and whole. It is through Jesus and the gospel of grace that we can say so long to flawed ideas and untruths. It is through the revelation of the new covenant of grace that we can say goodbye to erroneous doctrines, even the doctrines that were widely held, frequently repeated, and routinely recalled. In closing, hear the words of the Hebrew writer one more time. But Christ offered only one sacrifice for sins, and that sacrifice is good for all time. Then he sat down at the right hand of God, and with that one sacrifice, Christ made his people perfect forever. Therefore, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Friends, you and I are seated in heavenly places with Christ. He has draped his banner of love over us, the banner that was purchased with his blood. His heart, his father, is this. Daddy, through this new covenant of grace, help them to see the way we see. Help them to see that they are perfect so that they might be fully assured. In Jesus' name, amen. Father, we praise you and we thank you. Daddy, as these words go out and saturate the airwaves, and as they begin to drip into hearts of people that are hopeless and helpless because they translate their behavior as their real man, their inner man, and it has nothing to do with that. We are perfect, even as Christ is perfect in our spirit. And Father, as this word is chained together with words that are similar to it, that keep pointing us back to a holiness that came from Christ. We do not earn our own holiness. A righteousness that came from Christ. The standard has been set so high, Father, we could never attain it on our own. The law couldn't even take us there. It was only by the shed blood of Jesus Christ, that once for all sacrifice, that we can truly say, I am perfect and fully assured. 
in Jesus' name. Amen.